Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 161. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So we've got a sponsor this week. No, it's not Pootie Tang again. This week's show is brought to you by Drabblecast fan Daniel Solis and a neat little educational game he's developed and is running a promotional on until the end of May called Happy Birthday Robot. Giving this sponsor some prime airtime at the beginning of the show here because this is something I really wish I had when I was a kid. I think it's perfect for Drabble parents and teachers out there who recognize the power of writing and telling stories at all ages. Happy Birthday Robot is a storytelling party game for clever kids, gamer parents, and fun classrooms. Two to five players, ages eight and up, plays in 30 to 45 minutes. It's a great way for gamer parents to introduce their kids to the basics of role-playing games, expressing creativity, cooperating with other players, and sharing stories. Except the overall look is cute and kid-friendly, instead of dark and dorky. Hey, Junior, Daddy's festering army of evil bog imps just smote your puny level 3 white mage. <laughs> That's right, they're absorbing his mana at this very moment to fuel their unstoppable blood rage. Sorry, kiddo, them's the breaks. Daddy, I don't like these values. Can we play Happy Birthday Robot? The game is fun and easy to learn, and encourages kids, their friends, their teachers, and their parents to write short fiction together. Hey, uh, Junior, did you get a chance to read over that revised manuscript I emailed over this morning? Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Dad. I, I'm just, I'm asked to ankles in social studies homework this week. I've got a test on the state capitals Monday. No, 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 I, I understand you're busy. I, I was just... <sighs> Look, Dad, here's the thing. Your story, it's just sodden with cliches, and the dialogue just really feels contrived. And I still have major problems with the timeline. Parts of it just don't make sense. You know, I just, I just don't feel like you're bringing anything new to the myth of Gilgamesh. I mean, I'm sorry, Dad, but where's the pathos? Where's the catharsis? I mean, writing is as much a craft as it is an art. Oh, and Dad, last time I looked, there was a spell check function in Microsoft Word. You did know that, right? Oh, Christ almighty, I f***ing hate fiction editors. And furthermore, the game produces a short story in about the time of an average lunch break, a story which emphasizes the importance and effectiveness of keen, concise writing and attention to detail. Hey, that drabble only had 98 words in it. Bite me. That'll do her. You're good to go. In the game, players take turns rolling dice and adding words to a story about their friend, Robot's birthday. The game will be published as a hardcover, full-color storybook. I've had a chance to check out a PDF of it. I like how the structure of the game emphasizes order and decision-making. For example, you get to add a certain amount of words to the story when it's your turn, depending on the outcome of rolling the robot dice. The rules provide structure, and in the end, they give your robot friend a damn fine adventure on his birthday. Perhaps helping him slay the phallocentric Bull of Heaven and the monstrous demigod Ogre Guardian Humbaba in defiance of the gods. It's all about the pathos. 
So here's the deal. For every pre-order the game sells, it helps defray the costs of giving away free copies to libraries, at-risk schools, and nonprofit organizations. That's what this whole promotion's about. It's pretty cheap to give the game a try. There'll be links in our show notes, so go check it out if you can, or go to danielsolis.com forward slash happy birthday robot. And instead of a drabble this week, I pulled a story off the Happy Birthday Robot website, one of the actual end products of the game, written by kids, and I thought I'd read that. So here goes, Happy Birthday Robot, by Some Kids. Happy Birthday Robot, congratulations, you get to become a real boy. The professor cheerfully continues. One catch, a boy must take your place. Robot knows Bobby wants to be a robot, but he's grounded. But it's Bobby's birthday and he loudly wishes real hard. Professor hears Bobby's wish to become a real robot. Professor convinces Bobby's parents to unground him and allow the procedure, but it might be temporary. Bobby and Robot sit in a switcheroo machine, but it sputters loudly. Robot waits anxiously while Professor kicks it back to life. Bobby becomes Robot. Robot becomes Bobby. And Professor says with joy, Hello, Nobel Prize! Bobby likes flying around town with Robot's very shiny rocket legs. Robot likes eating pizza and playing with Bobby's little brother. Bobby misses pizza. Robot misses flying. They switch back. Well, our feature story this week is called Higher Than Usual, and it's written by Derek Patterson. Derek lives in Scotland with his long-suffering wife and an insane cat. He's still working on the same veritable plethora of science fiction and fantasy novels he was working on ten years ago, and he hopes to finish at least some of them before the sun goes nova. This story first appeared in Strange Horizons back in 2001. The story is read to you by Dan Chambers. Dan's a voice artist, animator, and director from London, UK. He's worked on shows such as Charlie and Lola, Peppa Pig, and the amazing Adrenalini Brothers, for which he won a BAFTA award. The highlight of his career so far has been directing Sir Roger Moore as Santa Claus in an animated Christmas card for UNICEF. His website's at danchambers.stodge.org, where you can find examples of his directing and animating work, samples of his voice, and also semi-coherent musings on life. So, without further ado, we bring you Higher Than Usual by Derek Patterson. Perkins came up to me and he was grinning from ear to ear, his eyes dancing with an unexpected madness that made me take a step back and look at him suspiciously. We've got one of them, he told me gleefully. One of what? I asked, bewildered. One of them, he said, as if that explained it. Cheeky sob from accounts, came upstairs and tried to get a coffee out of our vending machine. Can you believe it? Out of our vending machine. He was holding a plastic coffee cup and I wanted to sniff it to make sure he wasn't having a caffeine overload. Are you feeling all right? I asked. He nodded, still grinning, and jerked his thumb over his shoulder. The lads have got him in the toilets. They're giving him a damn good thrashing. 
That'll teach him to come up onto our floor. Accounts will think twice before they mess with us again. He turned and stalked away, leaving me confused and shaken. I'd have to have a word with someone about him. I didn't want to get him into trouble or anything, but there were limits. If he had a drink problem, the company would try to help him. There were groups he could join. As soon as I reached my desk, my phone started ringing and I forgot all about Perkins. It was a busy morning and I only managed to grab a coffee myself around 11. I glanced at my newspaper while I sipped the foul stuff, wondering whether I'd be better off drinking paint solvent. The rest of the day was fairly uneventful. I think I had fish for tea when I went home. Later on that evening, however, I remembered Perkins and what he'd said about the chat from accounts because I heard on the TV news that a body had been discovered near our office building. A mutilated body. The on-the-scene reporter said graffiti had been painted, in blood, on the alley wall. That made me frown, but it was only one of several news items that caught my attention. Apparently there had been a rash of incidents across the city. Serious assaults, acts of mindless violence, arson. Incidents that seemed nothing out of the ordinary when taken individually, but when viewed together spelled something else entirely. But I was too tired and my head was too sore to guess what the something else might be. I switched the telly off and decided to turn in early. As I lay in my bed drifting off to sleep, I heard the crash of breaking glass from somewhere down on the street below. People shouted and screamed, police sirens yowled like cats in the distance, a car alarm blared for a very long time before somebody finally did something about it. I hadn't bothered to set my clock alarm so I didn't open my eyes until well after eight. I'd slept badly, having some pretty awful nightmares. I showered and dressed and decided to skip breakfast. No appetite. My phone rang and Jane gave me dog's abuse for standing her up the previous night. A dim memory surfaced. Oh, we were supposed to have met for dinner. Her shrill voice made the earpiece rattle. I hung up, paused for five seconds, then took the phone off the hook in case she called back. It was a dull kind of morning, grey clouds, drizzling rain, the kind of weather that gives me a headache. The drive to work was anything but uneventful. I saw a couple of cars lying abandoned at the side of the road with their doors open, but didn't stop to take a closer look. Burglar alarms were ringing in every street, but nobody seemed to be bothering. Some of the shops I passed had had their windows smashed during the night. <laughs> I'd slept right through all the excitement. I'd nearly reached my office building when some idiot ran out in front of me. I hit the brakes, missing the bloody fool by inches. He snarled wordlessly and shook his fist at me, then limped across the street and into a doorway. He'd been carrying something under his other arm. I wasn't sure what exactly, but it looked as though it had blonde hair. He crouched down with his back to me, concealing whatever he had. Curiosity tugged at me, but common sense said I should stay in the car. Besides, it was none of my business, really. I drove into the office car park a couple of minutes later. The car park was half empty, which was unusual, so close to nine o'clock. I wandered inside, nodded good morning to Donna, our ever-happy receptionist, and received a very frosty look in return. Who kicked her out of bed? <laughs> when I stepped out of the lift, Perkins was standing there waiting for me. His shirt was spattered with blood and there were deep scratches on his face. He looked awful, worse than awful. 
Where have you been? He snarled, and I backed away from him along the corridor. This time he advanced, keeping pace with me and jabbing his finger against my chest. What are you talking about? I asked, aware of heads popping up to watch us. Accounts ambushed us downstairs. We could have used your help, but you were nowhere to be found. He drew himself up and glared at me, his face twisted. His hands were balled into fists. Aren't you one of us? He demanded. I did my best to smile, but failed. At that moment, I knew Perkins didn't have a drink problem. He was barking bloody mad. Of course I am, I assured him. I, I'm sorry I wasn't there. I slept in this morning. I must have just missed it. I'm sorry, Perkins. Really, I am. His eyes blazed for a moment. Then he, he seemed to regain some measure of control. All right, he said. It's not your fault. You didn't know what was going on. Those swine are going to pay. We're going to get them after work today. They... They outnumber us, but we're going to get them, you'll see. He turned and marched off. He was joined by two blokes from the office across the way who fell in on either side of him like a military escort. Queer wasn't the word for it. But as long as Perkins wasn't bothering me, I didn't care. I knew a chap in personnel, or human resources as they call themselves now. I'd have a quiet word with him. I arrived at my desk just as Harris stood up and swore, turning the air blue. Apparently, he'd experienced some sort of glitch with his terminal. Maybe the system had gone down again. Bloody sysops, he shouted. He snarled and threw his plastic coffee cup across the room. It struck the window and left a brown stain on the, on the Venetian blinds, but did no real damage. You get days like that. I smiled and sat down at my desk and checked my terminal, expecting it to be hung up like his, but it was, it was working okay. What was Harris's problem? Maybe he'd just made a mistake, hit the wrong key, but he'd blamed it on the sysops, the university graduates who worked on the top floor. They all wore wire-rimmed spectacles and pretentious ponytails, which was their way of thumbing their noses at the old dodderers like us who had to use their crap bloody software and to hell with how we felt. Harris continued to curse them, not letting up for an instant. I wondered what it was all about. Harris was a steady man, not the type who was prone to cracking up. He snatched up his phone and punched a four-digit internal number. You smug bastards, I'll get you for this! He shouted and thumped down the receiver, shaking his entire desk. No prizes for guessing who he was calling. Some confused sysop upstairs must be rubbing his ear. No one made any comments or jokes or told Harris to calm down. As I looked around the office, I saw that our co-workers were wearing various expressions of anger and disgust, directed not at Harris, but at the sysops on the top floor. For no particular reason, I tidied up my desk and left work early that day. The wonderful thing about flexi-time is that if you build up enough hours, you can have a short day whenever you want and take time to unwind and enjoy life. When I reached the ground floor entrance, I stopped for a moment to allow my eyes to adjust to the afternoon sunshine. The grey skies and rain had vanished. It was going to be a lovely day. The sound of rapid footsteps made me turn around quickly. Two men slid to a stop and regarded me with baleful eyes. Their white shirts were torn and filthy. It looked as though they both had nosebleeds. Yes, I said, looking from one man to the other. Is there something I could do for you? It was as if they recognised that the lunacy that gripped them hadn't affected me. They retreated back into the building without saying a word. There was no sign of the usual security guard, and Donna wasn't at the front desk either. 
The door that led to the private bathroom Donna used when nature called lay ajar. Was that a naked leg I glimpsed on the tiled floor? I turned and left the building. It was no business of mine. I'd already signed out and I was on my way home. Traffic was surprisingly light, which pleased me, and there was hardly anyone on the streets. I began to wonder if it was a public holiday and no one had bothered to tell me about it. <laughs> I stopped at the corner shop to pick up some milk and bread and a tin of cat food. I picked up a shopping basket and began filling it with groceries. When I finally had everything, I went to the counter and waited, but no one was serving. I couldn't see anyone in the back of the shop either, although there was an odd smell. I stood there for a full minute, but no one came out, so I put my foot through the glass panel below the cash register. That felt better. I pulled out my wallet, dropped two £10 notes onto the counter and stormed out. Let no one say I am not an honest man. Reaching my apartment building near the river, I parked in the street and climbed the four flights of stairs to my floor. I always use the stairs rather than the lift because some days it's the only exercise I get. I fumbled with my door key and was about to go inside when I noticed the unmoving shape at the end of the hallway. Curiosity got the better of me this time. The shape turned out to be a teenage boy wearing an imitation leather jacket, dirty jeans and Nike trainers. The door behind me opened and Mrs Rosebud, who had celebrated her 80th birthday the previous month, smiled at me. But it wasn't her usual friendly smile, more of a feral grin. Her eyes blazed with the same kind of madness I'd glimpsed in Perkins, Harris and the two blood-spattered men I'd met as I'd left the office. He tried to rob me, she cackled and closed her door again, but not before I saw the cricket bat in her hand. She told me her late husband had played for Yorkshire. The bat was covered with blood. She'd used it to beat the teenager to death. Well, she could clean up the mess too. I didn't eat anything that night because I wasn't really hungry. I cleaned the cat's dish and put out fresh food, but the ungrateful beast never appeared. The phone emitted an irritating noise, so I put the receiver back on the cradle. The winking red light told me I had messages. I wasn't really in the mood, but I played them anyway. Jane gave me more abuse for hanging up so rudely. Later, she apologised for shouting at me and said we'd sort it all out tonight. Her third and final message said she'd forgiven me. I threw the phone across the room and tore the wire out of the wall. She'd forgiven me for what? After it got dark, I turned on the TV. The news said there was rioting in the streets again, worse than it had been in the morning and afternoon, with rival gangs fighting it out, sometimes to the death. Only they weren't rival gangs, not really. They were just people from various buildings and streets clashing with people from other buildings and streets for no particular reason that anyone could think of. I turned the TV off again and sat in the dark, seething. Jane came to the door around nine. She banged and shouted through the letterbox, but I didn't answer or get up. After a while, she went away. Good. I had other things on my mind. Police sirens filled the night and I tried my best to get some sleep, but I couldn't. I kept thinking about Harris and those bloody sit-ups screwing up his terminal. We won a decisive victory against the Counts and cheered as the broken, bleeding survivors scuttled back to their offices, leaving their dead behind. Perkins, 
had fallen in the final moments of the great battle, defending our vending machine with his life. We carried his body back to our office and laid it reverently across his desk. Perkins was a hero. We all wept hot, sad tears when I placed the broken chair leg he'd used to brain the accounts manager across his chest and folded his arms over it. I was leader now. It was up to me. Accounts had been dealt with, so we turned our attention to the sysops on the top floor. Our terminals had gone down for the last time. We climbed the stairs, knowing they'd be alerted if we used the lifts. We silently spilled out into their territory and advanced towards the computer room. A cry went up. We rushed forward and grabbed the sysop who'd seen us. He disappeared under a tidal wave of bodies, his screams becoming fainter and fainter as he was beaten to death. Other sysops tried to stop us, but we drove them back into the computer room, destroying their equipment as we advanced. Some sysops got out through a fire escape door and we chased them downstairs, but when they reached the car park, they ran for it like the cowards they were. Just as we were about to go back inside our building, we were ambushed by a bunch of clerks from the insurance office across the street. It was a brutal fight, but we saw them off, inflicting heavy losses. I noticed afterwards that some of the survivors from accounts and a couple of sysops had joined us to fight against the insurance clerks, but we didn't attack them this time. Instead, we accepted them. After all, we were all from the same office building. We'd hardly had time to enjoy our victory when residents of the old folks' home on the corner hobbled towards us on their walking sticks and frames, their toothless mouths twisted with frenzied hatred. One of them nearly took my head off with her frame. I wrestled her to the ground while she tried to claw my eyes out. Youth won over experience, but only just. Then we were attacked by a mob from the next street. And the funny thing was that people from other buildings in our street, whom we would have fought and killed if not for the arrival of the mob, joined with us against the common enemy. The battle spilled into another street, but then we all stopped fighting each other and rallied together against a screaming horde that came south across the river bridge, looking for blood. But that was all right too. In fact, it was exactly as it should be. The city is burning now and the fighting is still going on. I just heard on the news that the same thing is happening all over, spreading across the country like wildfire. A group of scientists suggested that it was an engineered virus that affected the brain's behavioural centre. And I listened because I wanted to hear more, but the newsreader was stabbed by a weather girl from the studio next door. The studio floor manager and the news director carried her away, kicking and screaming. I don't know what they did with her. I switched to another channel where another expert was talking about the higher than usual number of UFO sightings reported worldwide. He was interrupted by someone else who tried to equate the increasing violence and mass suicides to solar eclipses of unprecedented intensity. They rolled around on the floor trying to strangle each other while a third expert blamed it all on fluoride in the water supply. Blah, 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 theory after absurd theory delivered by idiots who know nothing. Can't anyone see what's important? Those slags from the north side are massing to attack us again. But we're going to kill them all this time. No one's going to escape. The river will run with blood. We'll become choked with their corpses. 
The bleeding has stopped and I can see out of my left eye again. I'm going back out there to rejoin my troops. Bless Mrs. Rosebud for taking care of Jane while I tend to my wounds. I really couldn't have faced speaking with her again. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. One bad apple can sure ruin the bunch, huh? Anger's a contagious thing. Gotta watch out. It is almost like anger's a virus, and the fact that we feel compelled to infect other people with our outrage almost seems like an adaptive trait of the virus. Interesting food for thought. Sometimes, though, you just need to pop a chill accident and go spend a couple minutes in the chill-out house. So, story feedback. A couple weeks ago, I ran a story called Brief Candle by Ruthanna Emrys. This was episode 157, a story that concluded our Women and Aliens History Month in March, about a race of alien scientists whose children wash up on the shore of the beach and whose elderly wander out into the ocean, researching their origins. Holy crud did this story get people talking and discussing a lot of different topics, from eugenics to misogyny as an adaptive trait in primitive cultures, to population size correlating with economic stability, correlating to societal pressure to procreate, and the penalties for breeding. Sheesh. All in all, that seems to indicate that this story was a hit. Bell said, Like most good stories, it worked on a whole bunch of different levels, and like most good writers, Miss Emery's probably didn't think of most of them as she wrote the story. It could easily have been preachy in a number of directions. Instead, it was a good story about a difficult dilemma facing sympathetic, if amphibian, characters. Amphibian and ambivalent. Possibly ambidextrous, too. G.E. Lee said, Outstanding story and very thought-provoking. It's tempting for me to start engineering a solution to their problem, but I also think the main thrust of the story was to get the reader thinking about the idea of older generations making way for the new. Strawman said, The dilemma that is presented here is an example of how the vine of intelligent self-awareness naturally produces flowers of morality. These flowers almost always involve the blooming consciousness of what happens when one's own goals conflict with the common good. We are tempted by self-interest to rationalize continuing to pursue what we want, and at some point the personal goal in conflict with the common good leads to a crisis of conscience, which must be resolved one way or the other. Well said, straw man. Well said. So, you folks at home know that we like hearing from you. Don't be a stranger. Drop by the forums and make some new friends. We need more foot soldiers before we mount our next attack on accounting upstairs. And we've got this ongoing weekly 100-character story contest going on there. You might have heard of it. Give it a shot. We call them Twobbles, sometimes Twitfix, and if yours wins, then we post it in our Twitter feed before the episode comes out each week. This week's winner is... Algernon Sidney is dead. And here's his micro-story. Email viruses are worse than ever. Yesterday I clicked one that promised hot girls in your area. It summoned a demon. Yeah, it's getting bad, isn't it? That'll sure trigger your anger virus. So that's our show, folks. If you enjoyed it, please do donate. This is a weekly shebang, and we haven't missed a week in a long-ass time, so you can count on us. 
You can find support options off of our main page at drabblecast.org. It's super quick and easy. All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card, and we both greatly appreciate the help and need the help, if you can. Or you can blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, help spread the word, you know? This puppy's produced with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but copy, burn, and share it all you like. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to always use spell check, Dad. Dad.